You're listening to an OTM Podcast Extra. Hi, this is Alana Casanova-Burgess, a producer here at OTM. I'm recording this on Super Tuesday, the day when voters all across the country will decide their party's nominees. Except really, it's only in 12 states, and then the election process goes on for three dozen more primaries and caucuses, and it's another five months until the conventions. We know. We've been collaborating with the data news site 538 this election season, exploring how much media coverage influences the actual election. And we'll have another update on that question this week during a special hour on political prognostications. But 538 actually has their own elections podcast, and their episode today is a decoding of Super Tuesday, what to look for and how to read the media's coverage of it. It's nerdy. But we liked it, and we learned a lot from it. So we're excerpting a bit of it here for you. They recorded this on Monday, so you'll hear them talk about tomorrow, which is Tuesday. It starts with their podcast host, Jody Avergan. You'll hear from senior political writers Harry Enten and Claire Malone, as well as from Nate Silver, the founder and editor of 538. Jody speaks first. So look, we will talk about Super Tuesday and hopefully arm our listeners with a little bit of kind of what to look for as they're watching the results come in. We will talk about some of the many things that have happened since we last gathered uh, uh, around this table. Uh, but first, as always, let's do uh, a round of good polling or bad polling, where we uh, look at a use of polling in the media or elsewhere and, and ask good use of polling or bad use of polling. And this will not be about the PPP poll, which asked Floridians whether Ted Cruz is a Zodiac killer. <laughs> we will not be discussing that. Instead, we're going to talk about something that a number of listeners flagged for us, uh, courtesy of Stony Brook University political science professor Helmut Norpoth. He created a statistical model that uses a candidate's performance in their party's primary and patterns in the electoral cycle as predictors of the popular vote in the general election. This professor says that Donald Trump has a 97% chance of defeating Hillary Clinton and a 99% chance of defeating Bernie Sanders in the general election. A lot of listeners, I think scared listeners, emailed us this and said, what do we make of this? The forecast uses pattern of voting in elections and make that makes it less likely for an incumbent party to hold the presidency after two terms in office. And then he added some New Hampshire and South Carolina primaries to narrow it down. But man, this is a shocking number. Uh, Nate, first reaction to this when you when you read this? I physically get <laughs> angry about stuff like this because it, it takes the hard work that a lot of people do to figure out, can you forecast an election? What's the electorate really thinking? Very careful modeling work that's very explicit about the uncertainty involved in the race. And you just kind of throw five crappy variables in a regression, and there's a technical problem known as overfitting, where if you have a small sample size, you do a big search among a lot of variables, and you get something which is artificially very predictive, but we have gone back and looked at how well this model type of model does in the real world, not when you're backfitting data, but when you're actually making predictions. And the answer it does terribly. So it does worse than just saying things are 50-50. So explain that notion of overfitting. I mean, the way I understand it is basically taking a randomish samples and saying, well, because that random collection of so data points like saying, has worked in the past. Oh, when a candidate um, whose name rhymes with Linton is on the ballot, that candidate always wins. We have another Linton rhymer this time if Hillary is nominated. Therefore, my model, which is foolproof on all these elections in the past, prove that Linton's going to win, Clinton's going to win. You know, another way you know point blank without even having to look at the results of this stuff as BS is that 
every year there are models that say there's a 99% chance of either outcome happening. So someone <laughs> right. has a foolproof model that says 99% chance of Obama winning. Someone else has one that says 97% chance of McCain winning or Romney winning. Um, you know, you should accord uh, like basically absolutely zero weight to these things. And if, if you didn't have all these credulous press releases written up, it's like, Okay, there are a dozen of these things. They're kind of fun but this, to look at, and maybe if if all of them say the same thing, then that's sort of interesting. But this but, incumbent party thing is something, right? That it's hard to win three elections in a row for a single party. In my view, there's no longer an incumbent advantage. Well, here's what I'd say: it's clear both from presidential elections and from um, other types of elections that an elected incumbent tends to have an advantage. Um, you know, in presidential elections, you only have two possible terms now. Um, it's less clear what happens if there's a halo effect or a hangover effect Mm -hmm. from the incumbent's party. And among these models, some say that actually it's an advantage for Clinton, some say it's a disadvantage, and some say it's neutral. I personally would say, if you look at the history of it, elections without an incumbent tend to be pretty close, and I'd say it's a pretty neutral factor. All right. Uh, Dr. Norpoth, I think we're saying bad use of... Well, I mean, it's not really any use of polling. If you were to look at the polling, for instance, I I, I have Polyvote, which kind of looks at all these different types of factors, prediction markets, polls, expert judgment, index models. Econometric polyvote. Polyvote. That's where a parrot named Polly picks the elections. That's that's right. Um, Polly, who stays at my house on the weekends, um, incorporates all these different factors. And in fact, what they find is that the Democratic candidate is somewhat favored when you average all of these things together. Um, 52 to 48. I, I'm not opposed to looking, you know, at primary vote data to get an idea of what's going on, you know, in, in general elections. Sometimes it can be helpful depending on the circumstances. I've done it before. But just, the, just does it pass the smell test in, in my mind? Well, right? the irony is this model is based, I think, solely on New Hampshire. I, I um, think he might have incorporated South, South Carolina, Carolina in there. But, um, okay. Well, but, I, but he came up with the forecast before the South right. Carolina results. And I think just in general, Nate, your point of anything that's all the way at one extreme or the other. I mean, this is going to be probably it's, a close election. It's not good, and, it's not good science. Okay. So um, let's move on. But we, I want to do one very mini hyperspeed question for Harry. And then, Claire, you can jump in on good use of polling, bad use of polling, which is because we've been getting a lot, like a ton of emails about this. A lot of our listeners, I feel like, are going into, oh, my gosh, it's going to be Trump mode and then are pointing to polling that shows that Bernie Sanders beats Trump more regularly in matchup polls than Hillary Clinton beats Trump. Glenn Greenwald wrote a big piece about this saying the only chance to stop Trump is with Bernie Sanders. Um, Bernie Sanders himself used this data in a polling, in a fundraiser email that a couple people forwarded to us. So we actually did a riff on this, a little longer riff on this a few weeks ago that uh, people can go back and listen. But Harry, uh, give us the like 30 second version of why we tend to be a little skeptical of this kind of matchup polling. Michael Dukakis, George H.W. Bush, George W. Bush, all three, you've heard of these people, I believe they're presidential candidates, and all of them lost the popular vote in years in which they were predicted to easily win at this point in the campaign. Polling at this point, general election polling, in my mind, at least in the past, has not been very predictive of the outcome. That doesn't mean that they aren't wrong. We're never probably going to find out whether or not Bernie Sanders is a stronger general election candidate than Hillary Clinton. My guess is no, based on some other things. But 
there's just no real proof of it in the past that pro- that polls at this point for the general election actually predict anything. I, I think for the, the reason why this is my you know wild, not so wild hypothesis, but Trump and and Sanders are both like the populist candidates of or, or the the people that are po- the candidates that are pulling on a certain sentiment among primary voters, maybe people who are sort of paying a lot of attention right now to to the election. Um, so it kind of in some ways it makes sense to me that that they would maybe be the most competitive with each other if we're talking about sort of the feelings that are pulsating right now and in the primary electorate. But yeah, I mean, I think you have to be sort of um, circumspect about what that what the general election is going to look like, especially this year when um, <laughs> yeah. you can't tell anything. <laughs> the fact that Sanders is so far ahead of Trump is more a reflection of Trump than Sanders. Donald Trump is very, very unpopular with the American electorate as a whole. And I feel like I have an excuse to say that every time we take this podcast, but there's like no awareness of the fact that um, somewhere around 60, 65%, depending on the poll of Americans, have a negative view of Donald Trump. That's been true for a long time. By the way, back in 1999, when he was running as a maybe reform party candidate, people also didn't like him personally very much. It's not a new thing. Um, His numbers have not improved. Clinton's unpopular, too, and so she only polls a little bit ahead of him. Sanders, who is kind of a generic Democrat almost, polls way ahead of him. We can debate, does Hillary and does Trump become more popular or less popular during the general election? But to me, um, you know, that Bernie Sanders leading by 10 over Trump is more something that should scare Republicans than Mm -hmm. should scare Democrats, I suppose. Or, or encourage Democrats. Because Clinton does lead Sanders, if you look at those same yeah, polls. Yeah, no, it's by and a few, you have, and then Sanders is And you can argue that's more of a fair fight, because they're both kind of 100% name recognition. A little bit more is priced in. Um, right. You know, that polling average is at five points, and that's probably a reasonable over-underline. By the way, that means Clinton could win, or lose, rather. Trump could become president. Um, <laughs> it's not a joke. Yes, it's Donald not Trump a joke. It is it's a... probably the second most likely person you could maybe stretch an argument together for Marco Rubio, but probably the second most likely person to become um, the next president. Um, okay, so let's go to Super Tuesday. Claire, let's start. Let's start with the GOP, and then we'll do Democrats, and we'll talk about which states to kind of watch for on the GOP side. So, Claire, why uh, why are you in Oklahoma? Right, I know we were talking about some of the states you'd potentially go to. Uh, why? Oklahoma, why is it important? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm in Oklahoma um, partially because, well, mostly because uh, it's actually a state that could kind of be um, on the Democratic side, Bernie Sanders' last stand. Um, but, but if we're talking about Republicans, Oklahoma is sort of interesting because come tomorrow it could be um, another sort of data point on the, um, the Donald, you know, that helps us map the Donald Trump supporters. Uh, and uh, it's a state he's not he's not doing as well as he is in, in other states in Oklahoma, but he's still leading. Uh, but Oklahoma has a lot of um, middle class, lower middle class white voters, a lot of evangelical voters, sort of like South Carolina. And uh, we're expecting to see the evangelical voters here, a fair number of them go with Donald Trump, which is sort of adding like another um, another number to the pattern of sort of unexpected, support for this guy in a way that I think, you know, I think tomorrow will provide us with a lot of, a lot more, you know, solid lines to show us, you know, what the Donald Trump thing actually is. So there's this kind of contours of the race storyline that will come out from tomorrow. And then there's also just kind of like the raw delegate math to keep our eye on. So 
Oklahoma, not a huge delegate prize. Harry, what are the big delegate prizes on the GOP side? Uh, Texas. Texas, Texas, as Claire said. Texas is the big one. Uh, Georgia is another big one. Uh, Virginia, although Virginia actually is not that big of a one compared to the other ones, and it's proportional. But uh, Texas and Georgia are big ones. Alabama could be a surprisingly big one for Donald Trump because of the threshold rules in that state. It's a backdoor winner-take-all state. If both Cruz and Rubio finish under 20 and Trump finishes over 20, he could end up with all the delegates there. Um, but we're expecting Donald Trump to have a good night, certainly to be have the highest delegate total after the evening is done. The question is whether he wins a majority of the delegates that are available on Super Tuesday. If he does, that's a very good sign for his campaign. If he doesn't, still a good night, but uh, we march on. But Nate, parse that math because Harry's basically saying he could win, what, all the states but not win a majority of the delegates? So you it's have, not as simple as just winning states, right? So they're not winner-take-all states yet, um, but you have threshold rules. So in some states, for example, you have to get 20% of the vote. There are some states, such as Alabama, where you have polls showing, oh, Trump 43, Rubio 19, Cruz 17. If that's the actual result, then only Donald Trump would get delegates. I'm simplifying somewhat because there are things having to do with congressional districts and so forth. But, you know, if Trump wins on average 40% of the vote on Super Tuesday, um, he very easily could get a majority of delegates. He'll definitely get more than 40% with 40% of the vote. And Claire, on the Marco Rubio front, I mean, it's, you know, we've been saying this all along, and this is just an expectations game, but it feels like Marco Rubio's bar now is like if he consistently finishes second, somehow he ends up winning. He could win without winning a single state, in a sense. Yeah, Marco Rubio has a perpetual silver medal hanging around his neck. I think um, he's kind of slotted himself in this this sort of cozy place um, where he's getting a lot of the establishment endorsements. And while, he, while we all kind of know now that Trump is going to win most of the Super Tuesday states, you know, hell, John Kasich got on TV the other the other day and said then said as much, which is which is an interesting little soundbite. Um, but I think, you know, the person who's actually interesting to me to watch is Ted Cruz and how he's going to do tomorrow. Um, you know, he's projected in our in our model to win. Texas, but, you know, it would be interesting to see what the delegate math splits down to for, for Cruz, because I think he's sort of a wounded bird a little bit. And I wonder if, you know, I wonder how much farther he goes after Super Tuesday. I've heard from a lot of people out here, Oklahoma and Texas sort of share a certain DNA politically and culturally. And they've been talking, just to go back to the evangelical thing, that Cruz's campaign, which has a little bit of a reputation for being you know, the dirty tricksters, they, they had some of the, you know, they fired their communications director, Rick Tyler, for reposting a video about Marco Rubio. There was the stuff at Ben Carson in Iowa. And I think that's made uh, some evangelical voters switch over to Rubio or even Trump. And I think it'll be interesting to see sort of how his support, how Cruz's support in the South breaks down tomorrow. I mean, the, the Rubio silver medal, bronze medal thing sort of annoys me because on the one hand, the press like doesn't explain what it really means in context. In their hand, they make it seem like it's some implausibly complex plan that he has when it's not. It, it's a plan that might not work. I would bet against it. But the idea is that Marco Rubio is doing well enough now to be the second best alternative or the first best alternative to Donald Trump. And that as the field consolidates, more of the vote goes to Rubio than to Trump. Not all. There are a lot of disingenuous people who think that if you say, um, 
oh, well, look at you know where, where these Cruz votes might go or Carson. They think that means you think every single vote will go to Rubio. That's not true. But there are polls showing Rubio getting more of it, two-thirds of it sometimes, depending on where they start out, that can be enough to catch Rubio up to Trump or not. If Trump's already at 45%, you don't need very many votes. If he's at 35%, as he was um, for most election cycle, well, then if you get two-thirds of 25%, then all of a sudden you're pretty close to Trump. Yeah, just a two-second riff on this, and by two seconds I mean a minute, which (laughs) is essentially the argument, as Nathaniel has put it, is not that Rubio would get all the other people's support if Cruz dropped out Kasich, Carson. He would pick up about two-thirds, or maybe 70% might be a little close to the mark of the other people's voters. Now, if Trump's already at 45%, you can forget it. The game is over because Trump will get, you know, 55% or whatever, and it's and it's done. But if, say, Trump is, in fact, at 38 or 39 or whatever, and then Rubio is able to coalesce everybody else, even if it's that two-thirds or 70%, then Rubio can win. It's very disingenuous, and I don't understand why the people are, oh, here's another hole in the theory that Rubio would do better in a two-person field because he's not picking up all his points. No one's saying that. Well, there's a lot of, of cherry. We've gotten to the stage of the campaign now where you can cherry-pick in three different ways. You can cherry-pick different polling firms. Trump, for example, has typically done well in CNN polls. Yes. Um, you can cherry-pick polls from different states. His polls look a lot better in Massachusetts than in... Um, Utah, say, and you can cherry pick polls from different time periods. I mean, things do change. It seems to me like Trump um, has had a really good week in the polls. That he's gained support. Um, I hate to use the term momentum, but um, you know, but it's not like people. Have there are, been polls since the debate when it, when Rubio and Cruz there, finally there went have been, after Trump? There have been some, not as many as you would think. I mean, they're not very good for anyone except Donald Trump, right? They show Rubio stagnant or maybe falling back a little bit. You know, again, it's not the problem is. You never get polls from the highest quality polling firms that are last in the field because the best pollsters will do a poll over four or five days. So there's some there's some uncertainty. But remember, whether Rubio had an effective debate or not, it wound up just being one story in this kind of cloud of dust. And the psychology of this election is pretty interesting to me. Um, you know, movements that are partly cults of personality can kind of rally people to the cause based on spectacle and and momentum and i find that interesting i suppose i i would say the fact that um we've talked before about ceilings versus floors and i've said before that i think trump has a high floor maybe 30 or 35 percent of voters are firmly committed to him if people are newly on board the trump bandwagon now then in some sense they're a little bit more peel offable in theory but the thing that's very hard to imagine for rubio is how can you have a good enough Super Tuesday um, to both knock some other candidates out of the race and change the narrative a little bit? You know, how do you change that sense of inevitability, the momentum around Trump and just the whole kind of general can we swear on this show or I guess not? But the whole general kind of media inevitability, burn it all down circus, the spectacle. Yeah. of it all that is a little different than the, you know basically for being blind it preys on um on the irrational side of people and harry and i were talking the other day about kind of oh, what's your kind of gut say versus what your head says you know my gut says that trump is about to wrap this thing up my head says that's way premature um but i think most people in the media who are only thinking with their gut 
and see all these polls showing Trump ahead, and and there's been this whole kind of sense of not inevitability exactly, but spectacle around him the whole time. Right, and, and Trump knows how to play that spectacle better than anyone. And he knows anything. how to play that that spectacle, right? It's not incredibly obvious why um, why a Chris Christie endorsement should be a bigger deal than the debate. Alana here again. We're going to jump to another section now. This picks up on the idea that it's not just Chris Christie throwing establishment weight behind Trump. There's also plenty of GOP establishment figures opposing Trump, like Mitt Romney. Harry Enten explains. I mean, the last guy to run as the Republican nominee tweeted out on Monday a disqualifying and disgusting response by at real Donald Trump to the KKK, his coddling of repugnant bigotry is not in the character of America. You also have a sitting United States Senator in Ben Sass saying that he will not back Donald Trump. You yeah, have you a, think that's a pretty big deal. Huh? Oh, I think it's a huge deal. I mean, it, it, it would essentially, and you have Mitch McConnell, who's the majority leader in the Senate for the Republicans, basically saying, you know, on background that. We're going to distance ourselves from Trump if he's the nominee. Yeah. This is significantly different from the Democratic side, where the Senate minority leader, the head of the Senate Democrats, has already endorsed Clinton. Barack Obama, although he hasn't openly endorsed Clinton, I think most people recognize that he would prefer Clinton to Sanders. It's very, very different. If Donald Trump gets the nomination, it is quite possible that you will have a tearing apart of the Republican Party, possibly even if Trump doesn't get the nomination this is far different from the democratic side it's almost too hard like because we naturally are the people that are extremely cautious i think and we're the people who are always kind of shooting down and saying oh you're talking about this party disintegrating or a death spiral or a third party candidate running the donald trump thing is so momentous and so unusual all bets are off at that point all bets are off but you almost have to almost have to i think i saw some new york times chat justin wolfers and nate cohen are buddies mm-hmm. at the new york times are talking about this but you almost have to go the other direction and say you know the sky is orange and like things are changing and they're weird and this is extremely consequential and that some of the rules you can't go back and say well here this contest broke all the rules but now we'll go back and pretend that never happened and now we'll just pretend that donald trump is Mitt romney all over again and now all the old rules apply some of them will some of them won't yeah. but you at least have to have to think about that. So I think when, when, if and when the time comes, we will have to do a sort of podcast on like, what are the new rules or are there any rules left? Uh, but, but we're I, not I exactly there yet. We're not quite there. And I guess if there's some late Romney surge, I don't know how Romney? it's going to happen. Or Rubio. <laughs> I make that mistake mate, a lot. Living in the of... halcyon days of the 2012 election. Yeah, but like. <laughs> the podcast will be themed, what are the rules when Rome falls? Uh, <laughs> kind of what it feels like. I I would just say, I guess if I had one underestimation in this entire primary of which I feel, you know, where I go, oh man, I I wish I'd seen it further, was that Republican primary voters would be willing to throw the baby out with the bathwater. I did not anticipate that that would happen and it may still not happen, but I essentially mean they are about to nominate. Oh, that's it. Yeah. Who's the baby? I mean, (laughs) I mean, the baby is literally that they are throwing the party out with the bathwater. The the guy who ran for president for their party four years ago hates the current nominee. It's saying it's disqualifying. Yeah. This is huge. This is unbelievable. Yeah, it's and- almost – I mean, to me the question is – we talked about my, my piece this morning about how you have a political realignment once every 40 years. Some question is realignment, the right term to describe this or not, but, you know – Every 40 years, kind of, you get a new set of rules is one way to put it. But maybe Trump's even rarer than that. Maybe it's kind of a once every 200-year phenomenon. I mean, I, I don't know. <laughs> when, we, when we went back and 
in the spring, or not spring, the summer, said Donald Trump is unlikely, kind of, the biggest reason for that was because we think the GOP is not really much a Republican historically, and we thought the GOP would throw all its weight to try and stop him. One reason I worried about that prediction at times is that I thought, well, maybe we'll, Trump will get out to a head start, and then slowly but will become a norm, more normal yeah. candidate, right? Um, that he'll make peace with the GOP. There was this time in, in September, October, where he signed a pledge and was kind of more quiet during the debates and unleashed this tax proposal that was actually quite conservative and, and conventional. Ironically, what was happening then is that he was um, about to be overtaken in the polls by Ben Carson and was getting less media attention. Those things are probably related, too. Um, so the fact that he's gone back um, to openly criticizing the past three Republican nominees and being at war with the party and disavowing so many things that were seen as sacred cows for Republicans, I'm that makes it even, he doesn't know who David Duke even is. more amazing in some <laughs> yeah. ways. And so I said we were going to maybe do this uh, – in, in a future podcast, and we okay. basically kind of ended up doing it just now, but there's plenty more out there. Uh, so that was just a taste of the what just happened to come uh, in future episodes. But let's start to wrap up. We have to do that. Um, and we will do that by uh, answering a listener question, which is uh, you know one of our favorite ways to wrap up the show. So uh, we got an email from Tim Drummond, who, Claire, I wonder what you make of this. Um, he says... Uh, I've been looking forward to casting my vote for Bernie Sanders in Virginia's Democratic primary for several months, but your latest forecast gives Bernie a less than 1% chance of winning my state, and the poll averages have Clinton beating him by 30 points. Ouch, says Tim Drummond. So he posits this question, which is, there is an open primary system in Virginia, so his choice is, do I vote for Sanders or do I vote against someone, and in this case, Donald Trump, and actually switch and vote for Marco Rubio to stop Donald Trump? Uh, so I don't know. Do you have any advice for this person? And, 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 and I mean, how common is this scenario for people? Claire? Tim, my man, I think you should, uh, I think you should strategically vote in the Republican election. I think people should take advantage of the fact that the American primary system is like bananas. Um, <laughs> Bernie's not going to win Virginia. Uh, and if you'd like your, you know, if, you, if you're a Democrat and you feel strongly about the Republican side of the, the race, um, exercise your right and sort of be, be Machiavellian. Take, take Chris Christie's uh, example in stride and uh, think strategically. Why not? Why the hell not? Both sides proportional. Virginia on the Republican side is completely proportional and obviously on the Democratic side. All the states are proportional. Do what you want to do. I mean, <laughs> I mean, the delicate math won't change because your vote may be in some Harry, universe. Harry, yeah. Tim, your vote your doesn't vote, matter, vote buddy. Doesn't but no, the, it is worth pointing out that Democratic delegates are extremely proportional. So Bernie losing the state by 42 points makes it a little harder for him than losing it by 41 points. You know, I think there's a... So Tim could be that 1%. Harry, how many states have this open primary system? Is this a common thing? Do you have any? Yeah, I mean, there are a number of them. There are different ways that you can have open primary systems. One, you don't have any um, party registration at all, like in South Carolina. You may be in Ohio where what I would call a semi-open primary system where you do have, quote-unquote, party registration, but you can switch between the parties with just a loyalty test. So there is a lot of different ways that you could do it. Um, or you could have a semi-closed, like in New Hampshire, where only independents and the per people who are registered with the party are able to vote for that party. Mm -hmm. 
So that's it for this OTM Podcast Extra. You can find the 538 Politics Podcast on iTunes or on the 538 website. It's hosted by Jody Avergan and features Claire Malone, Harry Enton, and Nate Silver, who's going to be on On the Media this week. He's going to help us dive into the world of political prognostication. So stay tuned. Bye!